Alright, let's transfer the next tape for uh, Saturday, February 24th, year 2013, and we'll call it bonus 3. I'm going to be punished. <laughs> Who's there? Hello there, you're on the air. Hey guys, this is Paul. That would be Charlie. That's right. That Charlie, that's, that's right. right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank that, you. At least I got the last name right. That stern, staring look that he's got. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he he really had some, I'll call it, interpersonal relationship problems <laughs> along the way. But, you know, um, yes. I came he was making a million and a half per show. I came across a roast of Charlie Sheen making fun of that whole thing about him. I couldn't handle watching it for long. I just watched it enough I can understand to see that. what was going on, and now it's like, whoa, you know, it was a room full of, you know, stars, and you know, he's up in this raised area, maybe with a couple other guys near him, and, yeah. and it was just weird. I'm. This is a guess on my part. When you have done something so bad and made so many people angry and offended so many people, unless you stand up and make a joke out of it, you're doomed. I, I, I would think that's the only way to even try to make a recovery from something like that. What do you think, Walden? Um, I, think, I, I, I think sometimes... The best way to handle things, because the American public is such a forgiving thing. Yeah. You go ahead and own up to it as quickly as possible, and I think, mm -hmm. I, and I think generally oh, your recovery is a lot faster. Yeah. I agree. But, yeah. but he he wasn't able to do no, that. He, he just kept not. compounding it, making it worse. I'm not even aware of what exactly went on. Uh, what this was the show. Um, Three and a half men or two and a half men or something like that. Two, two and a half men or something like that. Something like yeah. That. I mean, I never watched it, but yeah. And he got fired Dude. from it. But uh, he he was making threatening phone calls and got into fights. I mean, it was, it was just awful, and it was clear that the man. No, I'm not going to say it because somebody's going to connect me. <laughs> what? Pardon? Phone calls to threatening phone calls to, to his, his stars. To threatening phone calls to his ex-wife. Um, oh, that pretty blonde. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know they they had custody. They, they they were contesting each other's custody claims, and so there were there was at least one child. I don't know how many children they had. I think it was just one, just one. So there was a child involved in the middle of this irrational fight and oh. irrational phone calls. Well, I take it she probably had it recorded like uh, there was another star who uh, did that, uh, one married to, um, oh, shoot, out of Africa, I'm thinking. Um, Meryl Street. Okay, wrong, wrong African one. No, um... A beautiful lady. Oh shoot! But doesn't matter. Yeah. What was the circumstance? Yeah. But but, there, but there, he there was all this ranting and it was recorded and 
And yeah. so you, you saw or heard some of that on TV. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. crazy. I don't know. These people, uh, it's like maybe the experience where they're not getting their way for the first time in the last 25 years or so, and they go nuts. Yeah. But, well, some people simply need help. And, you know, even when they're approached and offered help, Sometimes it just isn't what they're willing to accept or listen to. So, and that's the way it is. But anyway, uh, in relation to Artie Shaw, I can now, I, you know, I'm saying, oh my gosh, $600,000 a week. Well, yes, and in today's dollars, that certainly is the case with some of the television stars. So, well, thank you for telling me uh, his name. I would have struggled yeah. with that. <laughs> For a long that time. That man, a Dewey button. That's what I used to hear. Dewey button, that's right. That was, that was part of the running gag. The Dewey button. I have Dewey. several, um, I have several, uh, JFK buttons. They're oh. about maybe two and a half inches around or two inches around, and they're the kind where if you move them, the, the visual changes. And I think oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I think it toggles back and forth between his picture and he's the man for the job or something like that. Oh. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think I got, I think I have uh, at least four of them. I, I had one um, that I, that was in what I call my my dead box. It's a, it's a box that I, it's a shoe box that I started when my oldest sister got killed and I think she might have had it in her possession mm -hmm. but my mom gave me that and then when my mom died I found maybe four more or so so I wow. just put those in there too I don't know if they're worth anything or not well they're neat but pieces of history yeah. to hold on to exactly yeah. maybe it's the first campaign that my sister yeah. was into mm -hmm. you know Maybe yeah. in college or something. There are some but, things that the dollar value simply doesn't matter as much as the the historic value or oh yeah, the sentimental value, the intangible. The intangible can be a whole lot more valuable than the dollars that are assigned to something. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. Hang on to them. They mean a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they... They do. They do between my my mom and my sister both, um, yeah. So yep, uh, they mean a lot. Well, thank you for telling me about Charlie Sheen. I really appreciate that. You know, I just oh, struggle with names welcome. sometimes. So that was good. Thank you. Okay. Well, I don't know how much longer you're going to stay on. So I I had been brushing my teeth for a while, listening to you guys with the volume turned up <laughs> with my sonic hair. And uh, then I heard a few things. I figured out. Well, you know, I know that name. There you I know go. that that one. Yeah. So. Well, that's good. Well, I've got about ten minutes left in me. Okay. <laughs> and Sorry. I will sign off once more. All right, Paul. And, and okay. Thanks, Paul. You have a good night. You too. You're, you're welcome. I really appreciate what you guys do. This is truly um, high point of my week. Ah. Uh, oh, thank you. But, I'm Thank not you kidding. Know. You know, oh, unfortunately, it's also one of the nights that I that my family has available. You know, to spend some downtime, so I need to get out and visit them when I 
when I do, so I try to call earlier just in case I don't make it later. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, so, anyway, just to let you know. Thanks, Paul. And, um, you Thank you, have Paul. A week. Okay. You bet. Thank you. You have a better week. Um, for the Christmas present. Appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're very much. welcome. You earned it. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. That, that was one of the items that went when people called at the correct time. Yep. During the holiday calls. The holiday so That's where that came from. So, okay. In 1942, $100 in 1942 would be the equivalent of $1,380 today. So, Shaw could have easily been making... So 13 times yeah, or, the amount, or, and that, that was that was a 2011. Yeah, Pardon? He, he could have been making 60 times, so it could have been uh, six six thousand a week. Is what he could have been making. Wow. So how about that? 13 times. Now that that was a 2011 number. That was yeah. the most recent that I could find, and I verified it in two different places. So I'm going to believe that that's a hmm? If I could just make a thousand a week, I'd be happy. Hey, hey, hey. You know, a thousand dollars a week would be really big stuff for me. I know. I know. Keep, it would keep us on bunny food for a while. It would keep us on bunny food for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that's that's not an outrageous amount that we're talking about. No, but it's, not in today's dollars, but... Yeah. Added uh, on top of me, that that would yeah. That would put me into paying more taxes. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. In reverse, this is the the reverse amount. A hundred dollars today. If we bought something that cost a hundred dollars today, in 1942, the equivalent would have been six dollars and ninety-four cents. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Make sure. So if Fibber, yeah, poor Fibber and Molly. If Fibber and Molly went grocery shopping and spent six dollars and ninety-four cents, would be the equivalent of our spending a hundred dollars at the supermarket. So six dollars and ninety-four cents. That was a lot of money. It was. I mean, you think I think mem, what minimum wage might have been like thirty-five cents an hour or something like 30 that. Thirty cents an hour. Yep. Got that? Thirty so, cents an hour. So eight hours, I was two dollars and forty cents. That's a that's a lot of hours to spend six dollars and ninety four cents at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. A lot of hours. Okay, gasoline, nineteen cents a gallon. Hooray! Which is a little bit different from what mm-hmm. I saw today. Three dollars and ninety six cents a gallon. That's scary. We're back to the $4 threshold again. Well, Local maybe was, I wonder if we could have go ahead and uh, buy, you know, reverse reverse futures. We'll just go ahead and tell them we're <laughs> buying them at $4.1942 price. If we had reverse futures, you couldn't lose, could you? I think that's the object of your game. You cannot lose. Yep. I'm writing, I'm writing in today's car with 1942 gas prices. I think that would be a better deal. That would be a much better deal. So, 
Average house, $6,950. Wow. Uh, each site that you go to has a different average price. I don't know how they figure the average cost of a house, but that was, that was pretty close, $6,900, um, which is really interesting because we've got $6.94. Um, gosh, is the equivalent of 100 Okay, so, well, that doesn't sound right. That would put the average house today at $600,000. That doesn't sound right. Well, also, think, think I think the purchasing power was probably bigger back then because it wouldn't take you all that long to pay off the house if you were earning a hundred bucks a day or whatever, you know. Yeah. Okay. So I said thirteen times. So if we take sixty-nine fifty and multiply that times thirteen, right? We said 13 times. That comes out. Oh, yeah, this is better. $90,000. $90,000 house. So um, an average house, 90000 Does that sound? That doesn't sound right for today. No, I think the average, average house, house is a lot higher than that. I think it's, I think it's closer to the 182, low 200 range, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's probably a lot closer. A lot closer. So, okay, that's that's my story for tonight. Are we ready to call it a night? I think so. I've got a huge amount of information left for next week, including pizza information. <laughs> so we'll talk about pizza next week for a couple of minutes. Thank you, your brother. That's pretty good. Thanks to my brother. Thank yes, you. And, and, and uh, so everybody. And baseball. And I'm going to tell him you got the answer to that question. And everybody, we're in the next, we're in a new month next week. So that's Patrick, right. This Patricia. was the last night you had a chance to get into the drawing for yep. February. Yep. So put that on the agenda. We'll find out sometime in March who won Feb. So we're ready. Are we ready to go ninety-nine? We're ready. All right. We are ready. I have to say good night, everybody. Thank you for being with us. We had a good time tonight. It went fast. Good stuff. It went fast. It went very fast. So, good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. Everybody have a wonderful week, and we'll be back next week. And we love you all very, very much. We'll talk to you soon. Good night. Day by day, I'm falling more with you and day by day my love seems to grow there isn't any end to my devotion Deeper, dear, by far than any
The party's over It's time to call it a day They burst your grave Menu escape and it's time to wind up the masquerade. Just make your mind up. The piper must be. The candles flicker and dim You danced and dreamed through the night It seemed to be right Just being with him Now you must wake up All dreams must end The party's over It's all over My friend Now you must wake up The party's over It's all over My Sunday, February 24th, year 2013. It's October night here in uh, California. And we got a good program to f present right now. The Radio His Historical Association Colorado, the monthly show. Going to be up next. And then we'll uh, play some music until they announce the final award. Get Michael B on after that. So let's say a prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. But our listeners and supporters. 
Help the homeless, Lord, the needy, the poor. Bless those who are weak in spirit, those who need your healing hand. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, here we go, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for OTR from the Rockies. From the foot of the Rockies in Denver, Colorado, here's a program capturing the drama and fun of the golden days of broadcasting. Old time radio from the Rockies. Hello, this is Fred Hobbs. I'm speaking to you from the radio studios of RHAC, the Radio Historical Association of Colorado. And we're here to bring you interviews, historical information, book reviews, events, and fun for all on old-time radio, especially related to the Rocky Mountain region because that's where we're located. This time, two contrasting shows from the tail end of the golden age of radio, the 1950s. Both were on CBS, one dealing with murder, the other an entertaining slice of life. The shows, Crime Classics and Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. And here to talk about first Crime Classics is our good friend from the Radio Historical Association of Colorado, the one, the only... Bill McCracken. Bill, Crime Classics. Well, thank you, Fred, for all that. Any regular listener of our program will note that uh, last time around we did a program on Elliot Lewis, the performer, the actor. And we did that by doing his most famous comedic role, that of Frankie Remley on the Phil Harris Show, and also an adventure series that he was involved with, The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Today our attention is turned to Elliot Lewis, the producer-director, and as Fred has said, one of those shows that he did was indeed Crime Classics. What kind of uh, crimes are we talking about? Well, I mentioned murder. Is any any other... Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage from CBS in the 1950s. Bill McCracken, come back to you. Uh, other shows that uh, Elliot was involved with. Well, he first got into producing and directing when he was in the military and performed that way for AFRS. But his first real producer-director job was as the that role in 1949 for Broadway is My Beat, which lasted four or five years in that role. He also did Suspense, starting in the, in the summer of 1950, for four years. 
And if people are interested in hearing more about uh, Elliot Lewis, you've got a suggestion for them? Well, for example, John Dunning did several interviews with Elliot Lewis over the early 80s. Three different interviews that are in our library of uh, tapes that are available for listening by members of RHAC. They became pretty good friends in the 1980s because Elliot Lewis uh, took to writing mystery novels at that time. And Dunning, of course, wrote a lot of uh, mysteries himself. Elliot Lewis passed away in 1990 at the age of about uh, 70. I did want to mention what he did after he left Crime Classics and Radio in 1954. He did go to TV, was uh, involved with Climax, was involved with the Bat Masterson series, served as a uh, script uh, consultant on Remington Steel, and back on radio he did the uh, producer-director jobs for Zero Hour in the mid-70s, the precursor to CBS Radio Mystery Theater, and did the Sears Radio Theater Mutual Radio Theater in 1980 and 1981. Quite a guy, and uh, does this wrap up our kind of our series of, uh, of our tributes to Elliot Lewis? It does, and I can just add that in John Dunning's introduction to his the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio, he summed up Elliot Lewis with the phrase, he was a true genius. Well, there's nothing more we could say than about that. Somebody's a true genius. We really enjoyed today's shows, but of course we're going to have another one next time. And next time on OTR from the Rockies, we're going to talk about a couple of married couples who always wound up with a crime to investigate, generally a murder. Their names are Mr. and Mrs. North and the thin man and his wife, Nora, Nick and Nora Charles. Next time on OTR from the Rockies. Remember, too, you can hear past shows of old-time radio from the Rockies on our website, rhac.org. Just click on the show tab and enjoy. And, as always, thanks to Bill Bragg and Walden Hughes, who make it possible for old-time radio from the Rockies to be heard here on Yesterday USA. Now this is Fred Hobbs, your online host, saying goodbye and good radio. This is RHAC, the Radio Historical Association of Colorado. Well, I'm assuming a lot of you are watching the Oscars, so we're going to stick in a radio show. We still got Best Pictures, Best Actor, and they're going to have a closing musical number. They're saying this thing's going to run long. So we got time to stick in a radio show. We'll be back probably with Mike after this. This is One Man's Family. One Man's Family is dedicated to the mothers and fathers of the younger generation and to their bewildering offspring. 
Today transcribed, we present Chapter 6, Book 71, entitled, Father Barber Predicts the Worst. It's very, very early in the morning at the family home in Seacliff, San Francisco, and grim anxiety hangs over the library where Father Barber sits with Nicholas and Claudia Lacey waiting some word from Paul. Waiting some word that will give some inkling of what has become of 16-year-old Joan and her young friend Ken Arthur. All the rest of the family is at the Sky Ranch, and utterly unaware of the fact that Joan went riding last night, and now at 6 o'clock the next morning, still has not returned. At 4 a.m., Paul felt it necessary to call Nikki and Claudia secretly and bring them down from the ranch. Before they arrived, he dashed out on the possible clue. And now, on arrival, there is nothing to do but sit with Father Barber and wait. Nikki, there's pool under the highway to the beach. People who go swimming down there often do that on a nice night. You mean they are going out to swim in the ocean? Well, I don't know. Paul didn't say. But that's what crossed our minds. And we were afraid they might have been caught in a riptide or something like that. Nicky drowned? My dear, they didn't drown. They're safe and sound. I'm simply saying that Paul and I thought of that, and we believed the wise thing to do was not to disclose that part of it until we knew for sure. As it turned out, we were right. At least you and Father Barber were spared that, were they? Uh, treated like children and in my own house. Oh, see, yes, <laughs> Best intentions and all that. Well, I'm glad that you and Claudia are feeling so lighthearted about all this. But, Dad, aren't you? That she's not hurt, certainly. But I still would like to have explained to me what she was doing out all night long and why we had no word from her. If she went out to the beach and swam, why were her clothes left all night in the locker room at the pool? Well, who knows? Maybe the pool was locked when they finished swimming on the beach and they couldn't get back in to drink. But they could have gone back to the car and driven home in their bathing suits at the very least. Dad, must you give the worst implication to everything Joan does? And besides, Father Barber, Paul seemed very happy, so there must be some explanation. Yes, yes. Paul's inclined to be very easily satisfied where Joan was concerned, I'm afraid. Now, Dad. Hello, hello. Oh, Claudia. Oh, Claudia, I'm so glad to see you. Darling, darling. You got a kiss for me, too. Oh, yes, Mickey. Are you all right, Joan? Oh, I'm a little weary. Hello, Grandfather. Uh, and where do you pretend to have been all night? She's all in, poor kid. She's had a night of it. What was that crack, Grandfather? Never mind, Joan. Oh, well. And Claudia and Father Barber know about the clothes found in the lockers. Go on from there. You did leave the pool and go through the tunnel to the beach? Yes. It was early and a beautiful moon. Yes, I know. Nikki and I commented on it coming from the Sky Ranch early this morning. Oh, I'm sorry, Claudia. I didn't mean to cause all this fuss and worry. Really, I didn't. I know, darling. But what happened? In heaven's name, what happened? (laughs) Well, I know it sounds silly and stupid, but anyway, we started walking along the beach, and it was so nice and warm, we kept on walking for, oh, I don't know, a couple of miles, I guess. Anyway, we walked down to where the beach stops and the cliffs rise up to the Skyline Boulevard. You know the place? Yes, Joan. Well, Ken asked if I'd ever seen the caves and the cliffs there. I hadn't, so we rounded a point and started to climb up under the cliffs. At nine or ten o'clock at night? Well, I said it was silly. We've all done silly things, even your grandfather. Go on. Well, we finally got up on a ledge and it was a wonderful sight in the moonlight. We stood and watched a ship slipping along the water going out to sea. I don't know how long we stayed there, just looking out and talking. Maybe an hour. It, it still wasn't awfully late. But I got to thinking that Paul might be worried, so I said we ought to go back to Flyshecker and get our clothes and get home. Oh, I see what happened. What? Go on, Joan. Well, suddenly we came back to Earth, and there were the waves pounding in against the cliffs right underneath us. Golly, I was scared, and so was Ken. Of course. The tide had come in. You've been trapped on a ledge on the beach all night? And if you don't think it was cold toward morning in those swimsuits. Yes. 
There was nothing we could do. We couldn't go down. It was impossible for us to climb up, so... Well, we just had to sit there, that's all. What a terrible night. Darling, you must be dead. Joan, why don't you run upstairs and take a nice hot bath and then get a good sleep, huh? Go ahead. Okay. That's a wonderful idea, and I'll bring you some hot breakfast when you're tucked in. Okay. Now that I've told Paul how sorry I am it happened, I hope you and Nikki realize it, too. Of course, darling. Quite. Nothing like it'll ever happen again, I can tell you that. (sighs) Well... All's well, and all the rest of it. Uh, what an experience. A valuable experience, I hope. What do you mean, Dad? Now I hope you've learned your lesson, Claudia, and will get that girl up to the Sky Ranch as fast as you can. just heard Chapter 7, Book 71 of One Man's Family, written, produced, and transcribed under the direction of Carlton E. Morse. Chapter 8, entitled A Very, Very Tough Stepfather Indeed, will come to you next week at this same hour. family comes to you from California. is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. summer kisses, the sunburned hands I used to hold since you went away. The days grow long 
soon I'll hear old winter sound But I miss you most of all My darling When autumn leaves begin to Since you went away, the days grow long, and soon I'll hear old winter song. But I miss you most of all, my darling. through and 
and the angels ask me to The thrill of them all Then I shall tell them I remember Stars that fell like rain out of the blue. When my life is through and the angels. Ask me to recall the thrill of them all, then I shall tell them I I have roamed around I've always found that love will come and love will die it's always hello my lover goodbye And came a night that brought delight but ended with a lonely cry it's always hello my lover goodbye okay I was on the phone with Bob Hastings so uh, let me get over here. Sorry about that. And let's Jaws for Windows is ready. Conversation. Jerry Head. Jimmy Wilden. Larry Gas. Leaf Duck. Michael Beal. Online. Application. Send I Send SF. Send Con. Send File. Send Voice. Share screen. Invite the Enter. Leaving menus. Conversation list. List view. Michael Beal. Unloading Jaws. Cancel. Okay, but. Yeah, I was just talking to Bob Hastings, so he had confirmed 
Uh, he'll be on with Larry Gassman, John and I, Friday, April the 5th. And uh, Bobby is telling me about the family wedding that's happening two days after his birthday. One of his grandchildren get married on April 20th. Then we wrote down the dates for him to go to Seattle and got him the uh, date for Cincinnati. So, sorry everybody, I was just shooting the breeze with Bob. Bob was watching the Oscars, so uh, he was giving me his commentary uh, how everything turned out. So, that's why we're just a tad late. Well, why didn't you put that on the air? <laughs> me and Bob? Well, he, yeah. yeah, he called the other line. So that that was the, that was he recalled the studio number that I could have done it that way. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, hi Mike. Did you watch was, the ice? I'm cream? trying to figure out what the devil is going on here. I don't get any call from you. <laughs> I try calling you, I get nothing, and uh, you're busy on your private uh, uh, cell, and uh, you know, and you're. And just a message on your cell. I keep <laughs> Skyping you. I get nothing. <laughs> you know, no pickup. Yeah, and you're I, playing Doris. I and know. You're playing another Doris. I know. And you play one man's family. I know. And <laughs> well, probably and nothing. Nothing. Well, I figured I was looking through the uh, radio coverage of Oscars. And they, these are the beautiful thing about the radio coverage. They're saying this thing's going to run way late. And so I'm planning on that. That's why I figured, shoot, everybody's going to be watching the Oscar. I'll just throw a radio show. And then I thought, what the radio show? I bring you in. I turned off Skype. I turned, you know, then Bob called me on the house phone. I was just, I had my hand full. What can I say? <laughs> what can I say? Well, the, you know, the thing is, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the Oscars, Ran till seven after twelve. Yep. Meanwhile, E has their after uh, Oscar program already running from eleven thirty. Because I think that's what time the Oscar is supposed to be over by. Listen to the uh, uh, the guys who were analyzing, but they said uh, the producer knew ahead of time this was going to run late because of all the music shows, the music performances this year. So they knew this thing wasn't going to finish on time. So they, uh, so that's why we, I was going by that explanation. So that's probably why everybody thought originally we were going to end at 11:30. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm surprised they really started it at 8:30. They should have started it at eight. That's true, but you know, remember traditionally Oscars used to start at nine on Monday night, Eastern time. Remember in the old days, it used to be Monday night at nine o'clock. Yeah. And that traditionally all went three hours. Then, then they get up to four, four and a half hours sometime. And then they start to bring all that back. Well, the reason it's on Sunday is so that they can have all of these uh, red carpet shows during the day. Yeah. And now, here in L.A., they're shutting down all the streets by Tuesday. So a lot of, a lot of the locals are going to be thrilled that they're going to be able to drive back home tomorrow. Oh. So they've been, it's gotten to the point they can shut everything down around here for about five days until Oscar shows up. Pretty yeah. amazing. Well, you know, it, it's, 
you know, looking on uh, on, on Facebook, you know, the, uh, the you know the comments. I'm sure also there are comments on Twitter, pro and con, about uh, how the uh, how the show ran. It it never is as good as uh, when Billy Crystal is on. No. And uh, and then it is never as good as it was when Bob Hope was on. No. And so it's uh, it, it it's difficult for. People don't tune out. They think they think out here that the monologue keep people in touch that they want to stay in and watch the whole the, the, the show. I don't know if that's necessarily true. That they ought to just open up the show and go immediately to an award. Mm-hmm. So well, they you know they, they you know Billy Crystal and Bob Hope and Johnny Carson were are able to to you know were able to do that, but Seth McFarlane I don't think he was able to uh, to really. You get you know when you when you get people who are actors and not stand up comedians, it it, uh, it it really doesn't work as well. Now then you know then, then there are complaints about whether there's musical performances or whether there's not musical performances. Uh, my college roommate was complaining about Shirley Bassey. Mm -hmm. He thought that her performance wasn't that good, and I thought it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Then there's a debate going on as to whether it was lip-synced or not. Right. Um, the, uh, uh, you're looking at the, um, the Chicago, all that jazz, that looked like it was definitely lip-sync. Uh, the, uh, but, um, I didn't think Shirley Bassey was. Right. One of the things that is unusual about this is the orchestra is down the block at the Capitol, uh, Capitol Records building. Holy cow. They even, okay. They, they even yeah. showed it a couple of, uh, a couple of times. So, uh, you know, they're, you know they're, they're obviously, of course, communicating with a camera on the conductor. Yep. But it still is, uh, you know, disconcerting. I would think to have the orchestra, you know, not not only not in the same auditorium, but not even in the same block. <laughs> I wonder why they did it that way. Uh, I'll tell you, the audio is beautiful. Yeah, sound, you know, the sound of the uh, of the orchestra was very good. Now, you know, the one thing that that the uh, the musical number that is really confusing me as to how they did it is the Les Mis. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as you know, with the movie itself, they didn't lip sync. Right. They sang. Right. Now, if they sang in the movie and didn't allow them to lip sync, 
would they allow them to lip sync for the Oscars program? But yet you had um, everybody in the cast performing on it. Right. And I'm trying to see what microphones, if they you know, if they have headset microphones on. And I couldn't really tell. Mm-hmm. It didn't really look like they, uh, you know, I, I really couldn't see anything. And I don't, you know, I don't know how they would be able to cover with uh, the, the close-up sound of the voices, how they would be able to have done it any other way. Right. Than, uh, than having individual microphones. Now, if they have individual microphones, you're talking about it ended up being at least 15 people. Yep. And they were all being heard. Yep. And, you know, so it, it, it really was a... Uh, it, you know, it really sounded outstanding... Well, I'm going to go back and look at my disc because it really, you know, it lo- really looked uh, and, you know, and sounded great. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, lo- you know, look to see if I can find any clues on how they did it. Right. right. You know, unless somebody is going to give us, uh, you, know, the inf- you know, the information <laughs> and one of the... Uh, you know, you know, you know, in a newspaper article or Entertainment Tonight or something, and sure. and uh, you know, and, and give the inside story of how uh, of how it was done. But it really, you know, the uh, um, the audio sounded sounded great. Every person was heard, and I, you know, and I don't see how it would have been able to have been done unless they were individually mic'd. And with their costumes, you know, unless the microphone, well, they, you know, they're wearing ear wires. Mm-hmm. Now that I could see. Um, are the ear microphones good enough that it would give you a high quality sound of a person's voice from inside their ear? You know, you know, yeah, I, you yeah. know, I could see, <coughs> you know, I, you know, I could see some, you know, some but not all of the ear wires very clearly. Sure. But I wasn't really sure about, uh, you know, about what they would have as far as microphones are concerned. Sure. So it's, uh, anyway, let's see here. I'm trying to get a couple of things started here. <laughs> So that's uh, make it news. You know, I, don't know, the, I don't know if the camera caught it, but I guess the gal who won the the uh, the best actress fell down climbing up the stairs. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh yeah, so that, that was the biggest talk behind stage at the radio. They were talking about she fell down when she stumbled on her dress and fell down climbing up those stairs. She was up to winning the Oscar award, but because she's 22, she bounced back up. Uh-huh. But uh, that was that was that was something that I don't know the camera even caught that, but the the people behind the scenes were talking about that. 
Mm. I must have been looking away at them. Well, I'm, you know, you know, again, part of the problem is that television is behind me. Yeah. When I'm sitting at the computer, and for some of that, I was doing some work on the uh, on the computer, and sometimes I was sitting down, and, you know, turned around and watched uh, uh, part of the program. And uh, somebody was asking whether Barbara Streisand's uh, singing was being auto-tuned. <laughs> she, your, her final note was flat, and she's bending it up. And but they're bringing her. You know, and someone commented on this. They brought her audio down on that uh, on that final note. Either they brought her audio down, or she started singing lower in volume, mm-hmm. trying to bend that flat note upwards. Mm-hmm. So. That's another, you know, people are very skeptical now about all of this ever since the uh, inauguration. Right. And uh, speaking of the inauguration, I have, uh, you know, I commented a couple of weeks ago about the Mona Charon uh, article about the inauguration, how it should have had. The music, yeah. Classical music. Well, somebody wrote a nice letter to the editor in the Herald Leader that followed along with what I had said. So, uh, this, uh, I'll, I'll read this. This is uh, from a uh, John Shotwell in Lexington. It said, in a February 1st item, syndicated columnist Mona Charon derided President Barack Obama's second inauguration as pedestrian because Kelly Clarkson and Beyonce were chosen to participate. She calls pop music ordinary, worthy of elevators and shopping malls, but not august enough for a presidential inauguration. She seems to forget that the word pop is short for the word popular, derived from the Latin populus, and generally defined as well-liked and admired by the people. More than 65 million Americans liked and admired the president enough to vote for him in 2012. Presumably, the majority of people standing in the cold during this term's inauguration shared those sentiments and enjoyed the musical selections. Classical music, Sharon concedes, is not always accessible. Its incorporation in Obama's first inauguration lent the event certain majesty, she writes. According to one entomology dictionary, the word majesty descends from the Roman Empire and is often used as the title in reference to kings and queens. We address our leader as Mr. President, not Your Majesty. The incorporation of pop music into an inauguration recognizes the American people as ordinary, as in mainstream public citizens, not as a monarch's royal subjects or aristocratic elitists. Now, I may prefer Chopin as elevator music, but I don't expect others to share my tastes. 
with our next president is sworn in, I hope the ceremonies will include performances by both classical and popular artists. After all, the inauguration, the event is an, is an I got the, the killing the punchline here. After all, the event is an inauguration, not a coronation. So, uh, <laughs> the other, there's another short letter that was, um, uh, th that was published also, uh, from an Ann Wenches in Lexington. Mona Charon's column on President Barack Obama's choice of Beyonce Knowles and Kelly Clarkson as the headliners for his inauguration made me wonder who might have been given the knob if Mitt Romney had won. Ted Nugent and Meatloaf? Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, looking to see if there are any... Um, letters or comments here because I'm not reading from the newspaper I'm reading now from online um, well, if someone says I'm older give me some Fleetwood Mac Santana and the Eagles <laughs> I'm older than that and those are not the kind of performers <laughs> I want no <laughs> I don't think there are going to be any nice letters in here <laughs> to uh, to read here. So that you know, so uh, I you know, I'm I'm glad that somebody wrote a comment uh, about it. Uh, you know, since I didn't take the time to uh, to do it. Uh, the other article that I found of interest this week. Uh, you know, there was one. I'll read the whole article, but there was one section uh, about Louis Armstrong in it, which I think is the most interesting and appropriate as far as uh, you know, we're, you know, our interests are concerned. But uh, again, this is uh, you know during Black History Month, and uh, that's part of the reason, I guess, why this article was um, uh, was written. Uh, but uh, you know, I'd heard about these people in articles that were written at other times of the year. So it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, not that, uh, they are ignored, uh, you know, for the rest of, uh, for the rest of the year, it's about four black photographers with Kentucky roots. They say were they were witnesses to history. Uh, this is an article by Valerie Honeycutt Spears. Again, it's, uh, you know, from the Lexington Herald leader here in Kentucky. And that, that's an important uh, uh, part of the story. In the early 1960s, Calvert McCann was a Lexington teenager who took his camera everywhere, including the protests against segregated stores and businesses downtown. McCann is one of several Kentucky-born black photographers who have received national attention for their work. McCann recalled in a recent interview that he caught a moment in December 1961 when musician Louis Armstrong came to Lexington to perform at a private party at the Phoenix Hotel. When Armstrong saw demonstrators protesting the hotel's discriminatory practices, 
He stood at the door of the bus, refusing to cross the picket line. I got a picture of him standing in the doorway of the bus, trying to make a decision whether to go in or not, said McCann, now 70, and living at Lexington's Bluegrass Care and Rehabilitation. It's a good thing that McCann was at the Lexington protests with his camera. University of Kentucky Associate mm -hmm. Professor of History Gerald Smith said, The Lexington Herald-Leader, um, although back in those days, uh, you know, just as an aside, uh, back in those days, those were two separate newspapers. Uh, the Herald was the morning paper, the Leader was the afternoon paper, and they were both owned by the same organization, however. Uh, and I guess they had they both had the same uh, uh, editorial policy. The Herald Leader refused to provide complete coverage of the civil rights movement in downtown Lexington. But this history was preserved because Calvert McCann was there, said Smith. His photos document the determination and dignified efforts of civil rights advocates on a grassroots level. His photos also provide overwhelming evidence of Lexington's historic connection to the hardened racism and segregation that permeated the rest of the nation. McCann said his negatives sat for more than 40 years at his mother's house in Lexington. Smith, that's the professor, found out about McCann's photographs more than 10 years ago while working on his book titled Black America series, Lexington, Kentucky. In the Armstrong incident, demonstrators disbanded their line for Armstrong because they didn't want him to be sued for breaking a contract, according to Smith's book, which includes several McCann photographs. McCann remembered that Armstrong wasn't aware of the discriminatory policy of the Phoenix Hotel. He said that if he had known he would not have come here. I was just a teenager at the time, McCann said. They had these marches downtown and I participated in them and I took my camera and I started taking pictures. I remember the children who came. They were all dressed up in their Sunday best. McCann traveled and marched with Reverend Martin Luther King and photographed King as he headed on the march to Frankfurt in 1964. McCann photographed protesters on stools and segregated lunch counters. Once, McCann said, he was arrested during a protest. After college, McCann joined the Peace Corps and kept taking photographs. Many of his jobs after that involved social work and helping young people. He moved to the nursing home more than a year ago after he had surgery to remove a benign brain tumor. McCann said after a 2004 Herald-Leader article appeared, along with the newspaper's apology for not covering the civil rights movement, he received inquiries from all over the United States and from foreign countries. McCann said he never thought his work would receive accolades. I just like taking pictures, he said. And now they're going on to, uh, to talk about two other photographers. Um, Twin brothers Marvin and Morgan Smith were born to a Jessamine County sharecropping family in 1910.
they went on to photograph famous and ordinary people in New York City's Harlem. Morgan died in 1993, and Marvin was buried in Lexington's Cove Haven Cemetery in 2003, according to the Herald-Leader archives. The Smith brothers, who attended the segregated uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar School in Lexington, went to New York in the 1930s to escape racism and, according to the Herald-Leader archives, seek better opportunities for themselves as photographers and artists. UK professor Gerald Smith, no relation to the brothers, said their photographs offer a window to the rich, vibrant, and diverse lives of famous African Americans in Harlem. They were talented and fortunate to capture both private and public images of African Americans from many walks of life. During the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the Smiths photographed writers including Langston Hughes, Courtney Cullen, and Zora Neale Houston. Performers including Billie Holiday, Josephine Baker, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Ethel Waters, Lena Horne, Sidney Portier, sports figures Joe Lewis and Satchel Page, and various civil rights activists, according to the Herald-Leader archives. The Smiths worked so closely together that they claimed they didn't remember which one took which picture. Uh, filmmaker Heather Lyons, director of Lexington's Living Arts and Science Center, was the producer of a documentary on the Smith Brothers that aired in the 1990s on PBS. Called M&M &M Smith for Posterity's Sake, it was narrated by Ruby D. Lyons, in an interview last week, said the brothers gave opportunities to so many actors, African-American models, by providing them with film that they could show people, still photographs that they could take around. They really provided them a leg up. Lyons said the men kept the home they grew up in on Lexington's Roosevelt Boulevard until they were in their 80s, and they came back to Lexington at least twice a year. They remained good friends with the people they went to school with. Lyons said although she did not know of any photographs they took around Lexington, they took VHS tape of the countryside they grew up in in Nicholasville, which she included in her film. Now, another photographer, Chester Higgins Jr., a photographer for the New York Times and author of six books, said in a recent interview that he included a portrait of Marvin Smith in his book, Elder Grace, which, according to Higgins' website, features black who's, blacks who have attained the seasoned dignity and grace that only older age can impart. Higgins himself was born in Lexington in 1946. He said his mother had moved to Lexington, uh, moved from Lexington to Alabama by the time he was about six months old. Higgins said he didn't mention to Marvin Smith that he was born in Lexington. I knew they were born in Kentucky, but since I was raised in Alabama and my hold on Kentucky is very tenuous, I didn't feel that I had any sort of bragging rights to bring it up. However, when a reporter told Higgins he was included in the University of Kentucky Library's database of notable Kentucky African Americans, Higgins said he was pleased Kentuckians had recognized him. 
Higgins said that one reason he became a photographer was that during the 60s civil rights movement, too often media coverage did not show blacks as American citizens petitioning the government. Instead, we saw through the eyes of a cameraman uh, people who looked like they were thugs or potential rapists and arsonists, and that made me realize how powerful the image is. It also made me realize what is missing of the images of our people. Higgins said his role has been to always try to show the decency, dignity, and virtuous character. And the most important thing is not to sacrifice the dignity of the person because of their condition in life. So that's an interesting aspect of uh, Lexington, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. I had not known about this uh, Louis Armstrong story, although what I had known about was uh, that the Herald Leader uh, apologized for uh, their lack of, uh, of coverage, uh, their avoidance of coverage of the uh, civil rights story uh, in, in Lexington. Uh, the article they talk about in 2004 uh, you know, included a lot of pictures, and they said that you know these are things that you don't find in the Herald Leader's archives. Uh, they hadn't taken uh, pictures of it. Um, in fact, the lead picture on this article uh, is a picture of a uh, young black woman sitting on at a lunch counter, uh, and it says uh, Nettie Dunn was part of a sit-in at H.L. Green's in the early 1960s in Lexington. Blacks weren't allowed at lunch counters and dime stores or expected to buy food and leave or stand at the snack bar. Mm -hmm. And the uh, picture is listed as uh, courtesy Calvert McCann. So, uh, you know, these were uh, the documents of the private photographers, not the... Um, uh, not the newspaper photographers in uh, in this case. So uh, that's that's what I have from the paper this week. Wow, good stuff. Well, now we might look ahead on your agenda here, Mike. Are you still going to Europe? What what what's the uh, game plan here next few few months? Uh, have you guys worked out some details? What about art? Anything coming up? Well, we might put that might put the European trip on hold. Okay. Uh, at least I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we are going to put it on hold. Okay. And the reason why is uh, Leah, we hope, is about to be offered a um, uh, an advancement at NBC. Nice. We're we're you know, keeping our fingers crossed okay. that that's what they want to talk to her about on Friday. Okay. So, uh, uh, you know the uh, yeah. So she she's been holding off on on telling me she you know she didn't even tell me about uh, about why she was holding off on saying let's make plans let's make plans. Right. She said I didn't want to disappoint you. Knowing that you bought seventy dollars worth of London guidebooks <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> which is true, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, so uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, you know that they're going to give her a promotion, right? 
and uh, you know to you know for that reason uh, we wouldn't be asking off for for time for uh, for the trip to London. Yeah, uh, because we do have to ask for her time off for uh, uh, the uh, Ars convention. Right, and uh, uh, my paper has been approved. Uh, the schedule hasn't been uh, been announced yet, so I will be doing a paper on uh, on 50 years after the uh, uh, the two Christmas seasons, uh, the two unusual record-selling Christmas seasons of 1962, right. which was hijacked by uh, the first family and my son, the folk singer albums, mm -hmm. and the '63. Christmas season, which was hijacked by the uh, Kennedy Memorial albums, right. and uh, you know, I'm starting to uh, put together and make sure that I have all of the stuff I need. I still haven't found the photocopies of uh, Billboard that I made a number of years ago, but Billboard is online, so I can get all that uh, that information. Uh, uh, that way, if I can't find those photocopies, but then I went down through the uh, through the records, and uh, I noticed that I can't find my Canadian pressing of the first family. Mm. So uh, you know, and, and that was uh, that that was a very hard fought for record. Uh, one time when I was up in Canada for an arts convention, uh, a bunch of us were at a, uh, a, I think it was on Sunday morning, like it was after the convention was over, but uh, a lot of us were still there. And, and uh, there was a, uh, a flea market. And uh, I'm looking through some, uh, you know, I'm looking through some records. And I see a copy, a Canadian copy. Then one of my friends calls me, hey, come over, you know, take a look at this. So before buying it, I figured it would just be a second. I just you know, put it down, went over, and got involved with them for maybe a half an hour. And when I turned around, that guy was gone. Mm -hmm. So I lost getting a chance to get that copy then. To tell you the truth, I really don't know where I did get a copy, whether it was at a Canadian trip, whether it was, uh, you know, at, at uh, you know, in, in New York, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere, or even here, you know, maybe it pops in Lexington. But I know I've got it, so I put a. Uh, uh, I gave a message to David Lenick. I had just uh, bought a bunch of stuff uh, from him, and he was going to ship it down. So I said, "I, you know, I, I said, I just noticed I can't find my Canadian copy. Um, do you have a Canadian pressing? And if you do, I would need, you know, pictures and." Uh, you know, he then, you know, he then said, well, I've got my father's two copies. 
He said, I've got, I've got copies, uh, but all my comedy stuff is still in storage. He said, but uh, you know, for my father's uh, stuff I have here in the house, I have his, uh, his two copies. Uh, he said, do you want pictures of the disc? I said, well, if you would sell me one of the two copies, I'll, you know, I'd prefer the disc. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out what he has are a copy of both Volume 1 and Volume 2. Mm-hmm. You know, I told, you know, he, he said, well, if you look on eBay, you'll see there are hundreds of copies. I say, I, know, I, I need specifically Canadian pressings. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, so he sold me for just five bucks a piece. The, uh, uh, you know, because I'm assuming, you know, that their Canadian copies in Canada are as easy to find as American copies are easy to find down here. But we just don't see Canadian copies, of course. And so, uh, uh, you know, so he, so I'm getting my two, you know, a copy of Volume One and Volume Two Canadian pressings. I already have a British pressing. Looking, uh, looking through the stuff on eBay, I saw a German dealer with a copy, uh, with a European copy, and he puts it down as being a Benelux pressing. Uh, you know, which might mean that it's a, um, uh, you know, a Phillips, a Dutch Phillips uh, pressing. But it would be very, very expensive. It would come out to be like 50 bucks, including postage. Mm-hmm. So I'm just taking the pictures of it. Uh, but it going through both uh, uh, First Family as well as uh, uh, Alan Sherman's My Son, the Folk Singer, I found a uh, that there was a British cover that was uh, in black and white, and it said a special advanced copy. And I wasn't able to figure out on um, you know, where I first saw the picture which copy that was for sale was the one with that cover on it. And then uh, this af- late this afternoon. In going through um, uh, listings on eBay, I found a dealer in Britain that had a copy in that in that cover, coupled with a British copy of the Tom Lehrer, uh, an evening wasted with Tom Lehrer, that he coupled the two of them together, and uh, you know, you know, with postage, it'll come out to like about twenty five dollars. So I figured that was worth it. I needed that particular pressing of the Tom Lehrer, and I wanted a copy with the um, uh, with that cover. Uh, I, you know, I'd already grabbed you know, pictures of it, but I figured it, you know, the cover itself would be a rather, rather impressive part of um, the narrative of the saga, let's say, of the first family mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, they did not want uh, to have any covers, any copies of the first family coming out that was not with a real proper color cover. 
uh, Archie Blyer, who owned Cadence Records, was adamant about this. Uh, and what this meant was that uh, you know there were there was a shortage of copies on the West Coast, and they had contracted with several um, uh, pressing plants out in the West Coast to uh, you know, to press copies, but they didn't have the covers out there. So he he had one or two uh, of his executives fly to California with the color separation films of the cover, you know, you know, you're sitting on their laps mm-hmm. while they're, you know, on, on the, uh, on the airplane, you know, with the, you know, part of their carry on luggage right. uh, to, uh, to get them to California because he didn't want them to come out in plane covers. Didn't want them come, to come out with black and white covers because if he's putting out legitimate copies in covers like that, then there's no telling what's going to happen as far as counterfeits, mm-hmm. because that was what he was really worried about, that the uh, sales on something like this would get, you know, where, where you know, things were, you know, were selling at a very, very fast rate. He did not want the counterfeiters to, uh, uh, to start putting out copies. He wanted to keep a close track of, uh, of what were legitimate copies, which already is difficult to do with, you know, 10 pressing plants. And the thing is, we know what those pressing plants are. And I've got copies from at least eight, if not nine of the pressing plants. I'm still not totally sure about telling apart the different Columbia pressing plants. But there are three RCA Victor pressing plants. There are, I forget whether it was two or three Capitol Records pressing plants at that time. And then there's two Columbia pressing plants. Then there's Sonic. And then there is one other pressing plant. And I forget what the name is. And that was discussed in the, uh, uh, in the billboard. Uh, there was a special billboard issue where um, uh, they told the story and, uh, you know, everybody in the industry gave congratulatory ads ads for Archie Blyer. And uh, each of the pressing plants had a, uh, 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 had an ad as well. And that's where I was able to get a definite... Uh, uh, Definite identification of uh, which of, of what the pressing plants were. Hold on a second, I've got to change a disc. <laughs> okay, I figured that this was happening on Oscar night. It is uh, 10 after 10 here on the West Coast. Uh, later, um, after Michael, we're going to feature John Dunny's interview with Ruth Dustin Feldman. She was one of the Quid Kids, wrote a great book about the Quid Kids. 30 years ago, Larry and I had her on a few months ago, but I want to feature her interview with John Dunning. John did a great job. 
so that will be one of the things. I am interviewing Earl Hamner tomorrow. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. The uh, guy who created the Waltons uh, wrote, he wrote a lot of stuff in radio. Especially in the uh, 1950s, he, he was one of the head writers for the NBC Biographies and Sound. So those of us who uh, love the biography and sound on Fred Allen, Earl Hamner wrote that. Also wrote the one on Thomas Wolfe. He uh, put together the one on Teddy Roosevelt. He had a great story about going to uh, El visit Elder Roosevelt to get her thoughts about her uncle. So we're going to talk about his days in radio. Of course, his creation of the Waltons. So... Uh, Larry and I will be interviewing Earl Hamner tomorrow. Uh, Friday, we're going to be at the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters Luncheon. And they're going to be honoring Johnny Mathis. And so, on the desk is Bill Russell, the famous basketball player, Amy Elcott. Of course, Dick Jockey, Southcott, Gary Owens, Wink Martindale. And the yeah, Warwick will be there. Michael Feinstein at the special honorary uh, Friday, May the 10th. So we're going to be at both those functions. Uh, March the 9th, at the Spurvac meeting, John, Larry, and I will be hosting that. Uh, Barbara Harmon, Jim Harmon's widow, wanted to celebrate 30 years of Yesterday USA. So we're going to Skype in Bill at the Spurvac meeting and celebrate the uh, 30th birthday of Yesterday USA, which is March of 1983, best as we can uh, figure out. And I think Michael's back. Yes, I'm back. There and you go. Uh, if you see Michael Feinstein, say hi to him for me. I will. I figured out it was the same weekend as Ark, right? The weekend of May 10th. Ah. So he'll be out there May the 10th, out here. So, uh, but nope, you bet. Yeah, you know, you know, tell, you know, tell them you know, you've been broadcasting stuff about the God Bless America story. I will. So we need to get that uh, for the 50th anniversary. We need to get something uh, underway for that. Yeah, it's the 75th, 70, 75th 70, Yeah, November. So maybe you can get the uh, library to do something in New York, the New York Public Library, or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And let's see. So uh, uh, one of the you know so but, you know trying to dig up you know the copies that I you know of, of the record that I need, and then I needed to check on the CDs. Uh, I knew that there had been a CD which I had gotten uh, about ten years ago. And it turns out, you know, it was, uh, you know, reissued by collectibles. And I go to look, you know, I look up on, on Amazon for CDs, and I see that the CD is listed with uh, two or three dealers with prices starting at about two hundred and fifty dollars. I going. Whoa, what has happened here? I better be able to find my copy. Well, it turns out there have been three issues of it on CD. First is this single disc on collectibles. And amazingly enough, 
when I started looking, I found it five minutes after I started looking. So I have my copy of it, uh, my copy of it here. <clears throat> but then there also was about five years ago, a two CD set where volumes one and volume two were on two separate CDs sold as a, uh, as a pair. And this looks like, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, that it might be a, you know, quote unquote authorized issue. Bob Booker is listed as having written the liner notes for it. Bob Booker and Earl Dowd were the, uh, uh, were the producers of the uh, of the album, so uh, it's hard to tell whether the expensive copies, without writing, you know, without inquiring of the of the particular dealers as to whether what they are offering for that big, heavy, expensive price is this single disc collectibles which is what the listing was uh, was under or at least showed a picture uh, of the picture disc or whether they're selling the the two disc version of it which most of the descriptions were about the two disc version Matter of fact there were some comparisons of the single disc and the two disc version well, I mentioned that there was a third issue, and it turns out, for the 50th anniversary, in November, again, it looks like Bob Booker put out a three-disc version, which includes the two discs of the two-disc version, plus a third disc, which has the... Uh, soundtrack of the uh, that was the week that was broadcast, which Decca Records had put out. The soundtrack of the uh, Celebrity Talent Scouts program, the uh, you know his first appearance, and a uh, segment about what. President Kennedy thought about the uh, about the album, and I think what that would probably just be is the answer that he gave about uh, you know, someone asked him the question at the press conference, and he gave an answer saying that uh, the you know, that he didn't think it was all that funny, or or, the, or I forget what he said that he liked it, but that. But that Bobby thinks that it sound doesn't sound like me. It sounds more like him. Something like that. I forget exactly. You know, the, 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 you know, he makes a a joke about it. Well, that question and answer is on YouTube in a couple of places. Uh, there are several TV appearances of Meter on YouTube. One of them in color, color uh, color videotape. From an Andy Williams show. Now, this is an interesting aspect of Andy Williams and Vaughn Meter, the first family. Both of them were on Cadence Records at that time. Plus, after 
Archie Blyer put Cadence out of business, he sold his masters to Andy Williams, who issued, he reissued his recordings on Barnaby Records. What I don't know is, did all of Cadence go to Andy Williams, or did just, or did Andy Williams only buy the Andy Williams recordings from uh, uh, from Blyer? And where are these master tapes? Now the collectible CD, I have to go back and listen to it again, but I recall that a it's mono which is one of the things that was talked about at some of the people on Amazon. But also, it sounded to me like it was, it was, that it was recorded off of an LP. Now, there is, for the two-CD set, on Amazon, there are listing, there are... Um, uh, um, audio 